Good evening, and welcome to Suite 212, a new series here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's best and brightest radio station, that looks at the arts in their social, political, cultural and historical contexts. The programme will take an interdisciplinary approach, talking about any combination of literature, theatre, poetry, film, visual art, photography, architecture, music and dance, with an emphasis on the interesting, the intelligent and the fearlessly innovative. Work, in short, that isn't getting the attention it deserves from mainstream broadcast media. Sometimes we'll have panels to discuss cultural politics or the politics of culture. Sometimes we'll focus on a new publication or exhibition or a specific individual or group whose work we admire, providing the kind of in-depth analysis that we feel has gone missing from British broadcasting. In case you were wondering, our title is drawn from a 1975 film by the Korean multimedia artist Nam Joon Pak, who worked in the United States, has been named as the founder of video art and predicted the information superhighway in a paper called Media Planning for the Post-Industrial Society. Suite 212 was Pak's personal New York sketchbook that offered a fragmented tour of the city's media looking at commercialization and gentrification, as well as documenting its art scene. And our theme music is Aus by Fenez from the 1997 album Hotel Parallel. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm joined by Fatima Ahmed and Daniela Koshella. Fatima has held editorial positions at Apollo, Granter and Icon, as well as publishing criticism in a host of publications, including Prospect, the London Review of Books, The New Humanists and elsewhere, whilst Daniela is the author of two genre-busting non-fiction books, FMRL and Onabeam, both published by Zero, as well as an editor at Minor Literatures. We're going to be discussing the uses and limits of arts criticism, the common preconception that critics have failed artists, against the reality that the boundaries between creativity and criticism are increasingly porous, and the long tradition of people moving from criticism into artistic production or spending their whole careers combining the two. How has the internet changed criticism? Can we even speak of professional critics anymore? If we can, how diverse is the industry in terms of gender, class, region, ethnicity? How much of a stranglehold does London have over the art world, via publications or institutions based in the capital that maintain a monolithic grip over cultural criticism? Just to set the tone of the discussion, I'm going to introduce us with a quote from Brian Dillon's recent book, Essayism, which has been published by Fitzcarraldo Editions, in which he talks, amongst other things, about the nature of criticism and what drives him to do it. He writes, Why devote your adult life at the expense of more than one sort of security to the competition of many hundreds, perhaps a few thousand, responses to the world of things and books and pictures and places and memories? What is it all for, exactly? To keep certain kinds of fear at bay or to cultivate anxieties, to replicate the same fear a thousand times and more as if it were the only thing keeping you alive? So, all three of us have worked 
with different types of criticism, be it kind of reviewing, be it essays, be it kind of creative, non-fiction, to use a very kind of vogueish term. Um, the obvious question is kind of what drives us to do it? Why why work in criticism rather than than creativity? And can we speak of that border? Um, I'm sort of very interested in um, um, so no. <laughs> uh, Daniela, I'll um, I'll turn to you first. Um, could we maybe talk a little bit about your own kind of uh, writing practice and your relationship with literature and, and sound? Uh, yes, of course. It's great to be here. Hello, hello, everyone. It was really interesting when Juliet invited me to participate in this uh, program. My first uh, reaction was, I never really called myself an art critic. And it, it was um, extremely interesting to start thinking through this um, position. And this somehow uh, perhaps um, refusal from my own part to, to define myself as an art critic, although my whole uh, experience with writing and through writing is undoubtedly one that um, has to do with, with the work of artists and work of musicians and writers. So it is, it is uh, absolutely uh, a writing of criticism rather than critis criticism as such. And um, I was trained as an art historian, and uh, initially I worked a lot as a music journalist. And uh, at the time, um, there was always a different desire for writing uh, that uh, took the form of a very personal um, approach, which was hidden, and it stayed hidden. So I'm, I'm quite interested in discussing even forms of uh, public writing, what, what do we choose to publish and when do we choose to publish. Um, and the moment I uh, started to let this other writing emerge, this parallel writing emerge, was when I switched languages. And when I when I stopped writing in Italian, as you might have guessed from my accent, I'm not British. And um, and when I when I chose to to, to become a stranger, to make myself a stranger in language, to become a stranger in a language and to operate there. So I'm really interested in all this um, crossings of borders that can be enacted when we write and how we how we do that uh, there's always for me um criticism or, or or this form of writing which we find hard to, to dis def define and describe uh it starts with um a moment of recognition it starts with an encounter it starts with a with a with a shock even an aesthetic shock and that's the aesthetic shock that leaves us speechless initially and then prompts us to write or at least that's how our experience is there's a form of um uh, desire even embedded in in this encounter uh and then yeah how do we articulate our words how do we start to articulate our words so perhaps also the way we choose to write should be a topic for us to, today yeah, um, Fatima, I'm sort of quite interested to talk to you about um, sort of people who create and people who write criticism, people who do both, 
and people who kind of make original works in one field and act as critics in, in another field. Um, and this sort of process of moving from one to the other. Yes, I think like Daniela, I would never I would never describe myself as a critic. I've done a lot of criticism. But I think my ambivalence also comes from the fact that I often describe myself as a poacher turned gamekeeper or the other way around because I'm also as much an editor as I've I'm much more of an editor than I've than a writer a lot of the time. And so I've dealt with a lot of criticism in several different art f um, fields of art and I have a real problem with the idea that criticism is uh, is for failed artists because I think a lot of critics or would-be critics are failed critics <laughs> <laughs> so you know um, but I think I thought that Brian Dillon quote was interesting f um, from essayism because he's posing a personal question about what is it all for but I think I think a lot of the time the criticism that I'm very drawn to um, as a reader would be not it's not trying to rationalize art but it's trying to it's someone trying to make sense of something in a way I think criticism is trying to socialize art and bring it into a sphere that we can all talk about um, or even if we can't talk about it we know it's something to be talked about um, yeah but I find myself sort of moving on either you know on you know, there's a fence, and it's it's a porous fence. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, something that would be uh, very interesting to talk to you about here, uh, speaking about your role as an editor as well as a, uh, a writer, would be the sort of uh, relationship between sort of criticism and theory. Um, criticism in forms of reviews or in forms of essays. Uh, it's certainly been my experience as somebody who moved from academia into cultural journalism. Uh, the editors were um, were quite averse to theory. Uh, several, plenty of pieces of mine, in fact, uh, would either come back with notes from an editor saying, can you make this less theoretical, or just get spiked altogether. Um, because they were perhaps overburdened um, with theoretical references and discussions, although you know, that was an argument for me and my many ex-editors. Uh, but but can we talk about um, about editors and, and, and theory and, and how you feel about theory and criticism? I think here, I mean, it really depends on which art form, and I think some some arts are more receptive to it. But I think, let's take literary criticism, and I think there's also a canon of who gets cited and who and I I think perhaps my f my most formative experience as an editor in my first job I think I worked somewhere where you know if people and it wasn't it wasn't sort of it was a place where it was meant to be a sort of magazine of original writing this is so we're talking about Granter mm. so criticism wasn't really the raison d'etre at all but I remember you know there's there was a certain kind of person who would you know, if Walter Benjamin was in the first paragraph, my editor wouldn't look at it. <laughs> now, and at that point, I didn't, I hadn't really read any Walter Benjamin. And, was, um, and then when I did, I thought, my God, he's wonderful. But I could totally understand the It's this idea that theory is a prop. And I think w when it really works in criticism is when you use it to inform your response and to inform other people's response. And again, it's that social thing. 
but if you if it's just if the scaffolding is just too obvious then I might as well go and read Walter Benjamin would have po possibly have been my editor's response you know I think it really it's what you do with it it's not who you cite and mm. then but people use George Orwell as badly as they use Walter Benjamin <laughs> and you know but somehow you know but there's a certain kind of you know intellectual climate or I'd say unintellectual climate in which you can use George Orwell and that's fine mm. I mean i Obviously, the, it's not fine. The but. misuses of George Orwell will be a future show, <laughs> for sure. Um, may well be berating some kind of centrist journalists uh, at some point in the future. Um, I mean, Daniela, um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about your own work, placing in a context of, I think, a really interesting generation of writers that, mm. that we're lucky enough to be kind of contemporaries with. People who are kind of blending autobiography, kind of formally experimental or innovative writing, um, and sort of aspects of kind of art criticism. So I'm thinking of people like Kate Zambrano and her book Heroines, which looks at the lives, particularly of the kind of wives and women of modernist writing, um, her own ideas about the marginalization of women in literature and in the arts, and her own experiences. Someone like Chris Krauss, who of course, in her works, uh, reflects an awful lot on her own kind of quote-unquote failed filmmaking career, her literary career, her academic career, and her personal relationships. Uh, Olivia Lang, whose book The Lonely City talks uh, very interestingly about loneliness in large urban environments, which is kind of interspersed with a really dynamic and beautiful history of particularly kind of queer underground and outsider artists in the city and your own work which brings in um discussions of uh particularly some great kind of italian playwrights and filmmakers uh, on a beam talks about pasolini a lot for example um as well as your own relationship with kind of sound and words yes i think i'll address this question also in response to Fatima's point about canons, because I think that is a crucial part of our conversation here. And also I'd like to say something more about the site of writing and what happens. I'd like to say something more about what happens in the texture of writing uh, and on the page and how we choose to mobilize our words. Um, can you hear me? Um, so Fatima was mentioning briefly this question of uh, who we choose to who quote and how we choose to talk and who we choose to um, who we choose to talk about in when we uh, put together these constellations of uh, references, so to speak. And, and I think that it's really crucial one of the function of ourselves as 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 critics. Um, has to do with with taking responsibility not to stop on uh, what is given and or what is on our doorstep and to uh, mobilize the writing in a way that uh, makes something happen on the page whereby the references do not become this external system of legitimization that 
push the reader outside of the page, mm. but exist on the page as living material. And this is where uh, I think that the most interesting uh, form of art criticism can exist. When when I see people write, I read writers who can really um, animate uh, the material that they're writing through. And this can be something very um, canonical. I don't have particular problems, you know, you, you made the Benjamin example, and uh, that is not a particular uh, problem as such. It really has to do with what happens on the page mm. with these references, be it a very strongly canonical figure, and on the opposite being something very, very uh, obscure and sidelined. Uh, and, and I think that this is where language, discourses around language uh, can be brought up. There's this really, um, I mean, I, I mean, you mentioned Pasolini, and that's been a constant source of, of inspiration for me for many, many reasons and ways. And that's been part of my training as a writer. The simple fact that he's uh, writing and, and, and he's a poet and he's a filmmaker and all, all these different disciplines that interweave in, in his work and you can't really touch one the sense and the mood and the modality of one from the other. Uh, that, that, is, that is really incredible and how he could be militant by being extremely poetic and yeah. extremely, uh, um, yeah, driven driven by, by by rhythms, by rhymes, and all of that, and and the other way around, and that's where the problems began for him. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing Pasolini's Gospel According to Matthew as a student, and just thinking it was kind of astonishing that the most beautiful film about the you know the life and death of Christ could be made by this gay um, Marxist um, kind of atheist. Uh, I found that really fascinating. Um, and you mentioned that in On a Beam, and you also talk about Pasolini's entry into the composite film Rogopack with, uh, let me get this right, Rossellini, Goddard, Pasolini, and Gregoretti. It's equally long time since I saw that. But um, <laughs> Pasolini's film La Ricotta, uh, which features Orson Welles as a director making making a film. Um, and you write very well about just how kind of layered uh, this this piece is. And it kind of, the note I made in my copy of the text just said, is all art a form of criticism or is all criticism a type of art? And I just wanted to throw that at both of you as a kind of provocation. <laughs> um. Well, I, is all criticism a form of art? I think it is some kind of art because when it works it lives and as Daniela was saying you know it animates the subject and if it somehow makes it seem dull or you know then it then it's failed and I think art has the same kind of challenges so I do think that but what was the other other way around is all art criticism yeah. I think that one varies and I think some like some forms I think obviously if you're literature and you know you're 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 criticizing it in the same mode um film again i think can like sort of goddard or you know even Guy Debord's kind of you know um films which are crazy but kind of you know that they are forms of criticism in the same kind of vein but i don't know if you have something like architecture and an architecture critic it's you know that's an entirely different kind of you know um kind of mode um I don't know, I suppose you could have Lego models and that would be your kind of... Um, yeah, but I, I do think all criticism is a form of art, but the other way around is kind of that one varies. Mm. Some more than others, certainly. Yeah, I, don't, I think I agree. I agree with Fadima, absolutely. And um, 
it's it's quite interesting that we've been talking about criticism so far without even uh, starting to attempt at uh, defining what we mean by criticism, which is fantastic <laughs> in itself, because it's like we're, we're um, moving in a circle around something um, which is absent. Uh, I have um, a short quote to read, if I may. That came to my mind uh, when uh, when Juliet first contacted me, and it's from Elena Ferrante's book *Frantumaglia*, uh, and she's she's writing about. Uh, to me, she's writing about criticism, although uh, some other people might disagree. I always listen with great curiosity to people who talk about books I love. I hear them discussing precisely books by no one. Between the book that is published and the book that readers buy, there is always a third book. A book where beside the written sentences are those which we imagined writing. Beside the sentences that readers read are the sentences they have imagined reading. This third book, elusive, changing, is nevertheless a real book. I didn't actually write it. My readers haven't actually read it, but it's there. It's the book that is created in the relationship between life, writing and reading. Traces of such an object are found in the words of writers who reflect on their own works or in the discussions of passionate readers. But it becomes evident, above all, when the reader is a privileged reader, one who isn't limited to reading, but who gives a form to his reading, for example, with a review, an essay, a screenplay, a film. And I feel this really captures uh, a lot of what we've been discussing so far, even in terms of um, uh, this activity of, of, of responding and, and, and generating a conversation. That, that is what, that's what criticism means to me. It's like generating this transmission, this, this conversation, and this ghost, this this third book, this book that doesn't exist, but it's there, and it will be always different. That's what happens in this multi-layered reading and this multi-layered positioning that uh, you were referring to also in relation to, to Pasolini's film, for example. And I think it's interesting that, that Ferrante mentions um, this type of response in the form of review essay, and then she moves on to a screenplay and a film. So she's seeing criticism definitely across uh, borders and across genres and across disciplines. And I think that's what excites me about critical writing is about the fact that it's not a discipline and I hope it never becomes a discipline uh, in terms of academic constriction as such. And it leaves us free to move around and across yeah, I mean- these fields we can find so many different ideas about what criticism is and so much critical writing has been to try and pin down that problem that as you've said we we haven't really started to do yet in our 23 minutes that we've been on air uh and perhaps this is an insoluble problem and perhaps we should leave it insoluble uh, i'm going to read though uh three short quotes that i picked out uh, three people with very different approaches, one coming from a very conservative background, one coming from a uh, radical socialist or communist background, and one coming from a sort of post-war feminist background. And uh, those three uh, authors are T.S. Eliot, Natalie Lunacharsky, and Helene Sixou. So T.S. Eliot, who, um, for anyone who isn't sure, is the conservative, um, he wrote in The Uses of Poetry and the Uses of Criticism, the rudiment of criticism is the ability to select a good poem and reject a bad poem, and its most severe test is of its ability to select a good new poem, to respond properly to a new situation. So that's a kind of idea of the critic as a kind of canon former, 
um, and the particular difficulty of forming a canon with regards to new work. Certainly in my own experience of writing kind of reviews and essays, I find it far easier to talk about work from before I was born, for example. It feels like a lot of the work of sifting through what is good and not so good has been done. And if you want to focus on work that you feel has been unfairly derided or neglected, you can do that in response to an established canon. Uh, that really interests me. Um, Luna Charsky, who was the um, basically the commissar for culture in the early days of the Russian Revolution, Lenin looked at the incredibly fertile avant-garde culture that was emerging in uh, Russia uh, around about the time that the revolution happened and admitted that he didn't really understand this work and that he was quite busy with other things so he would hand over culture to somebody who he felt did which was Lunacharsky um, and in Lunacharsky's thesis on the problems of Marxist criticism he writes with the significant role that literature has to play under such conditions, Marxist criticism bears a very considerable responsibility. Together with literature, it's called upon to partake with intensity and energy in the process of the establishment of the new man and new way of life, um, which I think is, is, is very, very powerful. Uh, and I think it leads nicely into this quote from uh, The Laugh of the Medusa, the seminal essay um, by Helene Sixou, written in 1975 where she says, women must write herself, must write about women and bring women to writing. Woman must put herself into the text, as into the world and into history by her own movement. So you sort of see this idea shifting from Eliot, who sort of has this idea that the critic is sort of somehow outside the work that they're criticising, um, Lunacharsky, who sees criticism as nothing less than imperative to building a new world. Um, and Helene Sixou, who sort of responds to a certain number of, um, of different texts and disciplines, philosophy, um, psychoanalysis uh, and literature, to sort of look at ways in which um, a whole new type of writing that is specific to the experience of femaleness, womanhood, uh, what can emerge there? Uh, so I think there are there are some very very interesting uh, different approaches there, and it kind of leads me on to what I wanted to talk about, which is kind of more diverse approaches to criticism, uh, partly which have been enabled um, by the internet. Um, the internet has allowed a lot more long form writing, uh, a lot more kind of genre defying writing, and a lot of voices that previously might have not kind of got past the kind of gamekeepers that um, Fatima was talking about earlier. Uh, I'm thinking of people like the kind of late and lamented Mark Fisher, Owen Hathaway, Nina Power, um, all of whom published on Zero Books, which Mark helped to set up, uh, and Repeater, and kind of through blogging drew themselves into a circle uh, which kind of drew a lot of people together I mean I sort of I met Fatima through those circles really um, created an interesting exchange of ideas and allowed for a more theoretical approach um, so yeah I wondered if um, if either of you had any thoughts on how your own critical practice has been shaped by the internet or 
uh, you know, whether that be writing online or just being able to get a wider audience for print uh, through social media or other um, other ways of using using the internet. Um, yeah, I wondered how it had sort of changed or informed your practice. I say partly because of my background that I don't think the internet has changed my practice, it has changed what I read. Mm. I mean, it's probably changed what I do in ways that I'm not able to articulate. But I think what was interesting, you said about that sort of moment when people wrote, you know, you know, long, interesting blogs and other people respond to them. I mean, I was completely outside of that and sort of reading it you know, as an interested onlooker thinking, who are these people who are kind of putting together literature and buildings and why is everyone so interested in buildings? Um, and it was a real education for me, but from, you know, looking on really from a different country. Um, and I think we'll never know. And I think that sort of culture arose also at the time at which print media was under such pressure that it was at its most boring in a way. So I think there were two things going on. There was this new space and there was this conservatism. And I remember, you know, I think 2008, sort of the year of the crash felt like, you know, all the kind of literary journalists and, you know, all those pages were going. Um, and there was this kind of space on the internet. And then, you know, those pages haven't come back, but a lot of those people have moved over. Um, so it's really hard to tell. I think these kind of the, it's kind of an economic argument that I can't really sort out. Um, and now we can kind of we can sort of see the effects and see who's still around, but we don't know what it would have been like if there hadn't been a crash. Mm. Well, for me, I mean, it's very simple. I I wouldn't even probably call myself a writer if it wasn't for zero books. And, and <laughs> so I. <laughs> I, I have lost count of the number of rejections that I had before before encountering that outlet and and the v very fact of being an outsider and being somebody who writes in English as a second language and all those uh, gates and all those doors that are not easily opened, especially if you do not if you just move to a country and you do not belong to certain communities and circle. Let's be honest, that's that's how it worked for me at least, and and it's been an incredible. Um, an incredible opportunity, absolutely, and in the same manner as working with with uh, the people of my literatures has been incredible. In the same way as working with editors uh, at journals such as Three AM Magazine, just just to name one, and uh, music and literature. I mean, it's it's all been this fantastic discovery uh, for me in terms of readership and conversations. I think conversations, most of all conversations with people, because I don't believe, I don't ever believe that writing is just writing. It's never just words on a page. It's never just that it's, it's all the pressures and all the tensions and all the, um, uh, desires and demands that we feel and filter and, and give shape to through writing and and that's that's what uh, online has been for me it's been exactly that great i'm just going to remind our listeners that you're listening to sweet 212 a new um series here on resonance 104.4 fm looking at the arts in their social political historical and cultural context and today I'm talking with Daniela Cashella and Fatima Ahmed about the uses, limits and possibilities of cultural criticism. Fatima, I, I'd really like to pick up on your point about um, 
economics and uh, pressures on on publishers and kind of overheads it's an interesting uh, realization that I've had in the last kind of couple of years that around about the turn of the decade maybe slightly earlier so 2007 to 9 I only really read books that were published by two publishers pretty much all the fiction <laughs> I read came out through Dorky Archive Press which are based in um, Illinois and uh, kind of largely funded um, by sort of university um, um funds uh, that's a terrible sentence if there are any critics listening feel free to <laughs> pick that sentence apart but um you know dorky has a, a mode of um of funding that is reasonably secure um verso uh find a way uh, verso you know have backing and also have a number of kind of more popular writers who maybe subsidize um some of the the less widely read ones uh, and I remember seeing Chris Krause talk at the London Review of Bookshop a couple of years ago, and she said that she thought the most interesting publishing was all coming out through arts publishing rather than literary publishing. Uh, and of course, Chris Krause's own publisher, Semiotext, um, sort of straddled the boundaries of art and literature publishing, but also often published incredibly interesting works of criticism that straddled sort of radical politics, theory, personal experience, and so forth. Uh, but I sort of feel that's changed over the last kind of few years. And now there are a range of publishers like kind of Fitz Corraldo, Galley Beggar, Silver Press, um, I think Influx, many more that I've almost certainly forgotten, Comma Press, who either have started in the age of the internet um, or have kind of grown in the age of the internet kind of exponentially. And I think the reason for that is that um, the internet has often shown cultural gatekeepers that there is actually an audience for different types of work that previously the kind of consensus was that there wasn't an audience for these things. Um, that's certainly been my most interesting um, and kind of exciting experience of engaging online has been finding big circles of people around sort of book blogs like kind of Ready Steady Book or This Space, um, around certain kind of film blogs, music blogs, architecture blogs in particular. Architecture has always been a subject I've been very interested in but didn't really know where to start learning about. Um, that's been really useful for me. I think probably the hardest thing has been to pick a path through all of this. You know, having previously felt I was working in a kind of void in the sort of mid to late noughties, um, and I found there are so many um, opinions available to me um that you know sort of finding my way to a, a voice that i trust which i think is one of the main purposes of criticism is to provide a voice that people can trust and i think you know all three of us would have favorite kind of critics or writers on culture that we could name um because they they really speak to us and they lead us to new things and they lead us to see things that we know in a different way um but there, there are so, so many, so many opinions available to us now, um, and I wonder if this has actually made professional criticism harder because it becomes—it was never very remunerative. Um, let's be honest. Uh, but I wonder if criticism is is becoming less valued uh, in this in this context. I wondered if either of you had any thoughts on that. I mean, I think one of the things you were saying—I think you're completely right. We're in an age of there are l so many interesting, quite small-scale publishers producing work which you can I think you know maybe a while ago and particularly sort of you know 
that mid to late noughties period you would t- talk about, it would have taken you a, a lot. Um, it was much harder to find that person who also liked Anne Quinn, for instance. <laughs> uh, that that's that's easy. But I think the finding the kind of sphere in which you can have a meaningful discussion about it and relate it, relate these things to other things to try and make sense of the world and to kind of put them into a kind of I suppose a kind of social kind of universe um, that feels like the hard thing um, I think the other thing is that I feel criticism's kind of in the fight against publicity mm-hmm. and you know just you know publicity is and, and I don't mean and I, uh, this isn't a thing about PRs um, this is kind of you know, a lot of these kind of communities around kind of enthusiasm isn't enough, I think. But that's I, that that's what I feel the internet can really kind of push. Um, and I think it's harder to find places for criticism and detachment. And well, I mean, it can be you can love something, but you might want to kind of make sense of it rather than kind of say, you know, here's a here's my photograph of my paperback that arrived in the post, <laughs> which is a kind of odd thing for me. But it's about, <coughs> sorry, it's about time, isn't it? It's about how much attention is given, yeah. how much time is spent and how much attention is given to, to whichever f- art form we're, we're writing about. And that, again, that's where I don't think it takes long to, to discern the type of writing that, that takes that time and it gives that kind of attention. And I think attention again. Attention is, is a key word here, isn't it? In, in this speed, yeah. in this speedy... Uh, informed scenario yeah when do we stop how do we stop and and spend time rather than than consume and yeah and a part of me feels that certain publications which um have long been quite monolithic in different fields uh sight and sound for example in this country dealing with the kind of uh more uh auteurist art house or experimental end of cinema independent film uh the london review of books in literature and the tls and, and maybe one or two others uh i feel the the art publishing scene is a bit more diverse and i think that's partly to do with the economics of the art world compared to kind of left field film or literature uh wire magazine in in kind of experimental music and a part of me wonders if actually those voices uh those platforms sorry and the um the sort of aura that they you might argue that they have uh this idea that they are somehow a kind of a guarantor of uh quality writing um i wonder if that idea has actually become even more entrenched in a time where it's much easier for anybody to sort of offer an opinion at any length in any form um I mean, I think that's true in that if you've anything that's been going for as long as some of these public, I mean, has that kind of authority, um, often kind of not to the best sight to their detriment. Because, I mean, they weren't just, I mean, Sight and Sound is an interesting one because it's really two magazines pushed into one. It's old Sight and Sound, which was a quarterly, and it's monthly film bulletin, Mm. which was a a sort of magazine of record that's why they still sort of try and review every film every month that you're never you're just not going to be able to see um but then there were so many other film publications at the same time that have now kind of gone i mean who remembers city limits I and mean, that's you know before i was born but um 
so then that changes kind of how we perceive them. You know, the LRB, had, you know, it's really only a generation and a bit old, mm. you know. Um, I mean, there's a very famous um, essay by the American critic um, Elizabeth Hardwick called The Decline of Book Reviewing, and she's writing in 1959 in Harper's about how, I mean, really it's about how bad the New York Times book review is. And when she kind of cites examples of excellence and kind of interest and, you know, these are places that are really interested in literature, she's talking about the Sunday Times, the Observer and the New Statesman. This is possibly not, you know, I think things change much more quickly than we kind of realise. But I think Daniela's point about its attention that we value and actually I think taking the internet out of it and who's paid what for writing whatever it's that's why criticism's valuable it's somebody's attention and that's why i'll read a piece by somebody you know about something that you don't really know about but you kind of want to know this person has kind of if they can make it come to life for you for a moment you're kind of stopping time and stopping attention i also think that um the question of authority that you mentioned is is key here and uh and also the question of the fiction of authority and what fictions we choose to su subscribe to. Because, you know, coming from Italy, looking at all these magazines from a very big distance was a lot different for myself as a reader and somebody who was starting to articulate a language. Um, you just look at things in a completely different way and once you, you get closer, there's a moment of reveal and, 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 and it's just you, your position changes geographically also. And I think that the look from the periphery in criticism is also something that uh, we should consider and how many readers, how many writers, sorry, how many writers do we read mm. uh, that come from other from other countries and, and, and how, how much attention do we ourselves as readers of, of criticism give to, to what has been said and, and discussed and produced outside of this city? Yeah, I mean, that leads us very nicely on to, um, I think, the last kind of main point I wanted to consider tonight, uh, which is the diversity of criticism uh, in terms of, yeah, kind of gender, nationality, race, ethnicity, class, sexuality, um, you know, I think all three of us in different ways um, feel that we might be coming to kind of UK-based critical circles from an outsider perspective, um, you know, in terms of like where we grew up or which countries we've lived in, um, as well as a sort of variety of other other factors. Um, you know, none of us fit the sort of the classic sort of straight white male profile that I think has always been considered the kind of the neutral position in, in criticism as much as it has anywhere else. Um, so I wondered if we could maybe talk a bit about the sort of structural and cultural boundaries um, of kind of critical circles. I mean, firstly, you know, I'm very aware that we are we are in zone two or is it even zone one of london um, <laughs> so of course um as is, is often the case uh i am enacting the thing that i am criticizing to quite a lamentable extent but um yeah i mean maybe we, we could start talking about some issues around some sort of london centricity and and go from there what shall i say <laughs> i um 
I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've been looking for, I've been looking for outlets and uh, even publisher for my next book, and I had to go outside of this country. Mm. Simply put, it right. just feels, it just feels very, very difficult uh, for somebody who's again saying it again, writing in English as a second language to even get that kind of sensibility from um, publishers or editors. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, there's a really interesting point that Elfrida Jelinek makes in her Nobel Prize acceptance speech about uh, being sidelined and being groundless, but not without ground. And it's been always a recurring uh, thought for me. What does it mean to be groundless, but, but not without ground? It means that, yes, there is ground what you're doing, but it might be a different type of ground. So, yeah, that is, that is my answer. I mean, if we're talking about diversity, which I think you were a little bit, you know, criticism can't be, you know, it reflects the art forms that it mm. that it talks about. Although I think criticism can be in advance of that sometimes by chipping away. Um, I think there are particular, I mean, it's been interesting kind of to see what, you know, the Vida counts have done. I think they've actually made a difference. They annoyed a lot of people along the way. But, you know, I think, I mean, Sight and Sound is an interesting example, I think, again, because it's actually in the last two or three years, as far as I can work out, entirely transformed its gender balance in terms of contributors. Can we just uh, expand on the Vida count? Yeah, for, uh, so the Vida count, um, oh God, I can't remember what it actually stands for, but um, so, but it's an American organisation that counted every year, you know, just very simply how many you know, women contributors they were, there were in publications that I would kind of call the paddock of prestige, so from the New York Times to the New Yorker to the London Review of Books to the New York Review of Books. And, um, you know, and it was a bit of a gadfly. And, you know, I think the, the criticism is always that counting is a very crude tool, um, and it is, but it shows you something, and what you want to do about it is then entirely up to you. Um, but I think it's interesting that, you know, I mean, film criticism has always been a ridiculously male activity for an activity that involves just sitting in the dark and sitting in a chair. It's not like, you know, canoeing down the Amazon. Um, <laughs> and, you know, apart from like people like Pauline Kale, it's been, you know, it's been a really who, you know, was so successful because she was so exceptional in a way. So criticism's always had like the spot for the exceptional woman or the exceptional person who's not white. But it's never, you know, so I think, you know, Things have changed even in the last few years, not across all, not across the board and not in all fields. But I can feel that, you know, even the places that haven't changed feel it's a problem. And that's a new thing. I'd like to say something more about um, your initial question and point, and it's related to um, exclusions and silencing and forms of silencing. I think it's really important to not just think through categories such as... <coughs> gender and, 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 and nationality, but what kind of what kind of writing is accepted or is deemed legitimate or deemed acceptable? What forms of, of criticism are are accepted and, and, and welcome and what, what forms of maybe more uh, frayed, complex, problematic, ugly writing uh, do not find enough outlets, and that's again where where certain uh, alternative forms uh, have been quite uh, uh, incredible for my in my own experience. I was reading, I've been reading these days a series of amazing lectures by Ingeborg Bachmann that mm -hmm. she did in the late fifties, early sixties, about um, lectures on poetics, 
and they're collected together. They're not translated in English. They're collected together as literature, literature as Utopia. That's the title. And she writes uh, a lot about this, uh, again, these tensions. And she writes about uh, ugly language. And she said there's a tension in, 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 in writing and in literature toward uh, a perfection that we'll, we will never gain. But what we have at the end of every day is, is this ugly language, she calls it, and we have to... To, to learn to, to accept that and, and, and find forms for this. And I think it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, uh, Ingeborg Bachmann is a writer that I've only just discovered, a great post-war Austrian uh, writer, really wonderful voice within within that, that culture, a fantastic poet and a beautiful novelist as well. Um, and I think a big influence on Elfriede Jelinek, who we also, um, also mentioned earlier. Um, I mean, certainly um, there's been a quite staid feeling uh, to me, to certain sort of London-based uh, sort of publications, institutions. And um, I think, again, what we've been talking about, this kind of this, this low ebb um, around about the time of the financial crash where lots of publications, institutions that were dependent on Arts Council funding in particular um, disappeared um, and the filling of that gap um, by the internet and then the sort of gradual rise of of um, of publishers and institutions who were prepared to take a sort of more interdisciplinary approach and sort of bring in different styles of writing um, as you were talking about and different styles of criticism uh, I think that's been really really important um, and I don't know how you two kind of feel about it but I feel that kind of cultural criticism has been really reinvigorated um, certainly in this city and perhaps this country in the last kind of five or six years. I think, I think we're more aware, I think, I think things have always been various, but I think it's now much easier to see. Mm. Um, and I don't, and also I kind of think, I don't think pre-2008 Literary London, if that's what we're talking about, or what I'm going to talk about, was a kind of paradise, because there was all this space and actually there was much more money and why were things not more interesting? Mm. Um, but on the other hand, I don't want things to be more interesting and everyone to be poorer. Um, so there's got to be there's something we've got to do in the middle. But I think something sort of Daniela was saying, you know, earlier, I think about blended forms. And I think women have always had to find blended forms. And maybe we're not going to be able to get onto this. But I think, you know, that's I think it's really interesting that kind of this that border between, you know, fiction and criticism is kind of much more porous, I think, with, uh, I mean, a lot of the writers that you talked about, sort of Zambrino, Krauser, but then, you know, you can think, you know, what is Virginia Woolf doing when she's writing anonymous reviews for the TLS? These kind of, you know, these are all kind of, you know, forms of criticism that kind of now just seem quite normal, but are actually quite weird when we think about them. I think y your point is really interesting also in relation to the history of these forms. And, and I'm wondering uh, how much has been written or researched or explored in this sense, you know, beyond this layer of contemporary writers that, that Juliet mentioned before. What is the history of, of women writing uh, in hybrid modes before that? And, and why, why uh, is the novel as a form always the predominant form and then all the criticism and letter writing and all these women were doing at the same time are less exposed and but then I also kind of think um, the novel is a kind of transgressive 
to begin with, female form. It's a lesser form. It's only when sort of the novel starts sort of doing quite well that men start <laughs> writing, you know, kind of the novel in the 18th century, you know, it's not kind of, you know, men write essays, <laughs> you know. It's, you know, I think there's always a kind of recuperation of, of a kind of successful form by, you know, mm-hmm. um, by the kind of, the more kind of dominant traditional thing out there mm. so mm. I think I mean that's the conversation I'd love to have but I suspect we're not going to get we've, we've got we've got just under 10 minutes left so I, I would like to expand yeah. on this actually we've we, we, we've got a little bit of time so. but um I mean I would think I mean let's say Virginia Woolf but you know George Eliot I mean she's an editor a translator these things have been kind of lost to view or kind of you know they're yeah. not um, I mean, again, she's an exceptional woman who doesn't have that much time for a certain kind of... So, I mean, you know, her most famous bit of literary criticism is an essay called Silly Novels by Lady Novelists. You know, she's kind of saying, I can do something else. Um, but I think this sort of... It just... I mean, I'm sure... Just think of more and more examples. Um, and actually, Elizabeth Hardwick, who's a one... I, I didn't understand... Had she wrote a... One, she has a, there's a selection of her essays called Seduction and Betrayal, and they're all about sort of very traditional, you know, they're about Dorothy Wordsworth, they're about Sylvia Plath, they're all about kind of the canon of female writers. And I think I read them as a teenager and thought, but they're not really about these kind of books. They seem to be about something I don't understand. I don't, you know, don't really like them. Um, and then you come back to them, and they're the most subtle kind of workings of kind of feeling and reason and... And then I think if you know more about her life and her sort of, you know, um, they take on another meaning altogether, but they work on so many levels. And I think that sort of form of of criticism as a form of authority doesn't kind of do as many risky things. You know, it's sort of... but, But those also those essays and that kind of criticism also doesn't live very long, which I think is sort of quite interesting. But I wonder about sort of other forms, about in music. I mean, how, how does criticism kind of... I mean, that's a word I don't really sort of know very mm-hmm. much about at all. I worked a lot as a music journalist mm-hmm. in Italy and in Italy, but that was a completely different world, and to say male-dominated would be a euphemism, yeah. Um, but but um, in relation to sound, there's there's a lot of women writers, and especially emerging these very last few years, and there's been a, an incredible... Uh, exposure and resurgence in that sense of you know attention to to, to female discourses and, and, and criticism. I, I think that I, I wouldn't. I, I would compare it with with other forms. I don't think there's there's any problem mm-hmm. there. At least in my experience, and, and I have written a lot around sound too. And yeah, I, I wouldn't think that it's very different from what we experience today in, in literature and art and visual art. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the artists that I'm drawn to across a variety of disciplines are overwhelmingly um, women or like non-binary people or trans people. Um, I feel that's where a lot of the more interesting, more dynamic voices are, I think partly because people in those groups have been sort of sidelined, marginalised for many, many years um, and have much more to say, not just about the present uh, situation, the world that we live in now, but also the kind of the the recent and not so recent past, and the way that people have been written out, and maybe you know using criticism as well as art to write themselves. 
back in. Uh, certainly that's a project that really interests me, coming from a kind of trans and queer perspective, you know, having long been told that, you know, LGBT and queer identities, um, LGBTQI identities, lesbian, gay, bi, trans, intersex, queer, uh, are a kind of, you know, a new thing or even invention of the internet or something. Uh, when actually you, know, you can trace back these sort of these histories um, for centuries even and art and criticism are quite an interesting way of doing that actually they allow a sort of poetic take on kind of the existence of these identities and these ways of thinking that are formed by them um, that more kind of straightforward um, history and historiography don't really allow for so much you know this kind of this idea that you can't impose identities back onto people who uh, pre-existed them uh, which I think is kind of is true and is valid but I think art and criticism uh, allow a lot more space in that regard I think that's that's really interesting um, we've got I think two or three minutes left uh, we've got three minutes left um, so I mean I'm not quite sure how to uh, to close this conversation because it is a topic that we could talk about I think forever um, I don't know if there are any um, kind of closing remarks or quotes that um, that either of you have brought in that you. Um well, I did have I did have a short quote from um, Banu Kapil, who's a British Indian immigrant to the United States, a poet, fantastic poet, uh, and it is from her book called Ban and Banlieu, that was published by Night Boats in New York a couple of years ago. And it's really short, but I think it really captures this idea of a body uh, and language and syntax. So I'll read that. The former hunting grounds of King Henry VIII, earth mounds, oaks split into several parts by a late century lightning storm. These suburbs are in places leafy and industrial. The Nestle factory spools a milky lilac effluent into the Grand Union Canal that runs between Hayes and Southall. Banis 9, Banis 7, Banis 10. Banis a girl walking home from school just a, as a protest starts to escalate. Pausing at the corner of the Uxbridge Road, she hears something, the far-off sound of breaking glass. Is it coming from her home or is it coming from the street's distant clamour? Faced with these two sources of a sound she instinctively links to violence, the potential of violent acts, Ban lies down. She falls to the ground. This is syntax. I mean, this is an incredible uh, excerpt uh, that... Yeah, as I said, uh, embodies uh, the tension that we've been talking around and the attention to language and rhythm and cadence. Um, I don't think I could possibly come up with a conclusion about criticism because I think for me the point is that you know it makes a it's it's for a better on it's for a conversation that never ends in a way. But I think I think I've mentioned Elizabeth Hardwick before, and I think partly because I've been rereading her with this kind of sense of you know, she's more interesting and more difficult than I sort of had taken on board. And I think, um, but she says something at the end of this essay about declining book reviewing about, you know, the unusual, the difficult, the lengthy, the intransigent, and above all, the interesting, and that's interesting in italics, should expect to find their audience. Great. Well, I mean, that feels like a wonderful place to draw the conclusion for tonight. Although, of course, this will be a key theme for the show that I hope we'll return to on many occasions. Um, we're working on a website, but for now, please find us on Twitter at Sweet 
underscore 212. That's S-U-I-T-E underscore 212 for more information, including details of our forthcoming regular slot here on Resonance 104.4 FM. 